Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome again to another podcast episode where I have much anticipated, much looked forward to interview with Kusama Nasution. Yes, here we have Kusama in the, in, with me here. And how are you, Kusama? Fine, thank you. As well as can be, considering you know that we're in a national pandemic, international pandemic. You're coping well there, yeah. Uh, we're doing a lot of gardening, so my husband and I like have uh, like the garden. The garden is flourishing because you know we didn't do any gardening before last year, and then now it's uh, you know composting all the food waste. I think your brother will approve of that. <laughs> I know the last time I went was for for some sort of a party. I forgot what it was, but I went to Penang, and the last time there were a lot of people there at the garden. So now the garden is totally different. Yeah, what what does it has to do with your activism, your gardening? Is it okay? Uh, actually, I'm also taking uh, my masters, which has something to do with ulam, but it's anthropology. So I'm very interested in biodiversity in people's gardens, you know, and especially edible. Uh, edible gardens because I think that's the future you know we have to learn to to eat what we have I'm very um, into this whole urban farming movement um, although I'm working mainly you know in in our own uh, land or, or backyard but uh, my uh, I have a lot of friends who are really keen on urban farming and I'm also in this uh, permaculture group, but they're all these KL people who are far advanced of us, you know, and um, the, but the people in Penang, Taman Jajar, Sungai Kulian. So the community gardens have brought people together, you know, and, and also we learn to eat things that we never learned how to eat before. And um, I'm also like a bit involved in this, uh, what I call the Makan Rumput group. Makan Rumput. Oh my God, that uh, means, literally means eat grass. Yeah, yeah, it we eat. Uh, I mean, we since we grass is illegal. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. Not that grass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not that grass. Okay. But, Herbs. Yeah, yeah. 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 So um because people need to survive, they need actually a diverse diet. So we cannot just be eating Megimi, right? I mean people who are like B40 people, they cannot be eating Megimi. So they should actually, you know, get involved in growing something and and eating a lot of greens, which keep us uh, healthy. You know. Um, okay, but today we're not going to talk about that, right? We're no, no. This is going straight to <laughs> straight to architecture because my students, yeah. the doing design pieces, housing, and mm. looking at it, uh, organic waste, and looking at urban farming and recycling mm. for markets. Do you think that mm. architects could actually integrate all this urban farming in in uh, mm. building typologies? What, yeah. what, what would your advice be for architects in this, this corner of urban farming activism? Okay, you see, uh, architects usually they will think of uh, hydrophonics, right? And vertical farming, which I think has its place. So you can do hydrophonic farming for certain things, but there's a lot of chemical input. So we actually try to avoid that. Lah. We try to uh, use food waste as far as possible. And of course, manure and some people are even using, uh, our keyword is called tampui, but it's basically using urine, you know. Ooh. And so actually in, in permaculture, you need uh, animals, right? 
but not everybody can have like chickens and goats and all that. One of our members actually has a, you know, all chickens and goats in the in the garden, but not everybody can use that. So in a way, human beings are also part of that uh, that whole cycle uh, of you know uh, nutrient cycle. Yeah. Um, and so people just need to do whatever they can do anywhere. There is uh, this ecological concerns and climate change issues. But of course, uh, the, the, the one that when you can go out and about, you were uh, demonstrating against the South Penang Reclam Reclamation Project and the um, master planning uh, for there were issues of master planning with the Penang Forum on, on public transportation. Mm -hmm. But now you're, you're at your home and you're being very resourceful in looking into urban farming and stuff like that. But uh, I mean, this could be the last question, but this could be the first question. And working in a team, you know, you work with engineers or planners and stuff like that. And what is the bigger picture, the bigger concerns that you're looking into? Okay, okay. The, the bigger concern, the bigger yeah. concern, we live in a very artificial world. And uh, in the year 2020, man-made uh, mass exceeds biomass. So how do you expect us to survive like this, you know, if people keep building, building, and uh, especially empty buildings, empty offices, because a lot of air-conditioned offices are going to be obsolete. So um, people are not going to buy uh, air-conditioned office space because they can work from home. And, and uh, you know, people used to buy, okay, like people who have lots of money used to buy uh, homes, you know, everywhere because they can turn it into, uh, what do you call it, uh, Airbnb or they can rent it out and, you know, but I think now those all those empty condos that have been built are going to stay empty until the price comes down and, and it becomes affordable because you're, um, you can't have a second home and then go travel travel and then go and stay in it for one month of a year. And it's so wasteful. All this is very, very wasteful. So we, we really need to get down to what is real and what uh, we can use, you know, sustainably. That means um, re if we say that, okay, uh, you know, there was this, this, this idea that uh, leave half for nature, uh, you know, and now they say leave one third for nature. <laughs> but you get the idea. You know, you cannot keep on exploiting and, and expanding the horizons of the built environment. It, in, it cannot... in, in the context of Penang, I mean, this is very much a Penang issue with a uh, lot of uh, Penang... second homes and all this third homes. Yeah, Penang is, is worse lah, because Penang is already very uh, practically totally built, you know, except for hill land. But every, everything else is already built. And that's why now reclaiming land and then land in the sea, you know, reclaiming land in the sea, right? So uh, it's a kind of urban sprawl. It's not called urban sprawl, but it is. Because it's very car-dependent uh, mobility and we're not improving the public transport, even though the Penang Tra Transport Master Plan was supposed to improve public transport. It got hijacked and now it's a highway plan. And it means... And urban sprawl means that you you actually expand you know the the uh, amount of space needed for your uh, you know your roads and your your buildings instead of and we have only eight hundred thousand people living on the island so why do we need so much built space you know you know what I mean but the urban sprawl is actually uh, now spilling over into the sea and they're building more and more 
buildings which are going to be empty, not occupied. Uh, in the north, already Gurney Drive, Tanjong Tokong is going to be, that's the scenario, uh, you know, where, which they were they're hoping to, to sell to foreign buyers. But those foreign buyers are now not coming because of COVID pandemic, because of capital controls in China. And so now they're going to spill over into uh, Penang South Reclamation because that's the only thing they know how to do. The only thing they know how to do is build excess capacity condos, try to sell it to foreign foreigners. And it's 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 a environmental disaster. So that's happening in Penang. But in, in terms of Malaysia, of course, uh, all sorts of activities encroaching into the forest so that the forest is so fragmented. And you know, if we don't have that central spine, which where where you know, I mean you the certain certain species of animals they need larger forests because they're predator species. So if you don't keep the forest intact, right, and it starts getting fragmented by roads and all that, then uh, that's the end of our, a lot of the wildlife are going to be uh, endangered. I mean, they already are. Um, so are we trying to create a future where there is no wildlife? I mean, in terms of mammals, at least, you know, uh, of course, the, there will still be, you know, insects, but even people are, are worried about bees going, to, becoming extinct because of, uh, excessive use of pesticides. So what kind of world are we creating where there is no room for nature? You, you know what I mean? And you the, think other, the, the COVID uh, pandemic, nature hits back? Uh, it, it has, but we're still, you know, um, Not learning the carbon, Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would have, it the, the carbon emissions would have been worse if not for COVID pandemic, but even then it has not really come down that much. We're already, I think today is, uh, what do you call it? What do you call it? Um, carbon, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll find the word, yeah. But um, so, um, so we are, and architects need to become eco-literate. They need to acquire eco-literacy. It's one of the basic skills of any human being, you know, today. So, have you met any architect who are eco literate? Have you met any? No, no, there are a few, but uh, I'm saying that all architects, you know, yeah, that without exception, yeah. Of course, some some people are, are you know planners and architects. Some are very much ahead, you know, in terms of the eco literacy. But um, we need uh, more of that, lah. Um, so anyway. <clears throat> What is what are your concerns? Is it in terms of education, or is is it in terms of um, dissemination of knowledge that is not happening that make architects uh, eco illiterate? I think the architectural education is very very. Uh, no, I Object. never had an, I never had an architectural education, so I can't really say. <laughs> I'm one of those kepochi who like like to kipochi. talk about Easy other people's, uh, <laughs> yeah yeah today is uh okay um us overshoot of overshoot day I think it's today uh, or it was today or yesterday uh five days ago five days ago earth overshoot which means that we have already consumed it was five days ago we have already consumed uh you know all the resources. That means you cannot replenish. You can you, like if you if over if Earth overshoot is December the thirty first. That means you're kind of a bit sustainable, lah. But if your Earth overshoot is in August or end of July, then 
you have already consumed so much resources that the earth couldn't possibly replenish. So that's that's the idea. So it's related to carbon footprint. So carbon footprint, you know, eco density, all this should be part of the architectural uh, education. And you know, when they learn how to create a habitat, the habitat must also be um, have have these ideas embedded, you know, embedded. The problem is not the architects and the planners, but the problem is the developers because they are the ones who give the jobs, right? And the problem is not the developers, but the problem is the government because the government is the one that sets the limits and the politicians are usually funded by developers. So where, where is the problem? I mean, it just goes round and round and round, right? But uh, um, when you have political business collusion, which says that you can make money out of nothing, like out of sea, out of somebody else's sea, like in a tamba, or even you can you can increase density uh, by with a stroke of the pen, right? So that um, like in Penang Island, we have no local plan. My 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 friends in Selangor are so shocked because they said, "What Penang has no local plan? You are so way behind." Because the, the I think deliberately there is no local plan so that the 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 city council or the state government can then decide that oh we're going to give extra density to so and so. So these are a kind of public interest things that a lot of people are not aware about. So we have to be aware, and uh, you know, it's, so, it's, so, so it's, it's yeah. a system. Yeah, it's a system. Is it a, a morality issue? When we talk about uh, developers, it's mm-hmm. uh, just the public which have to have which has extra money and they invest. They invest on a formula or something that they have done in the 50s or 60s, you know, their fathers or mm-hmm. grandfathers have done the same formula of investing properties yeah. and and then you, you, the rest of us will get caught up with it because they're the one which which can develop. You know, the word is development, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And uh, then the government uh, will have to actually have some monitoring or guidance mm-hmm. if they, they need to control development, obviously. So, um, uh, okay, never mind Penang or Malaysia, even that, even... Mm. What about overseas? Do you find any good examples of how it is controlled development. What is your, yeah, your I, perspective? Well, I can't really say overseas because I'm not I, I'm not that familiar, but I know that um for example uh in in Europe for example uh you don't see a lot of greenfield sites right you see people are actually working mainly with existing buildings. So you architects still have work but they are renovating they are you know, they are doing infill and, you know, but these are brownfield sites. So you don't then go and cut down another forest because you want to expand, you know, that uh, you need to create another housing area. Because so the, the population yeah. is also not expanding there. I mean, the population there is shrinking, okay. right? This is a very important point. Um, don't have to cut any more forests, you know, maintain the forest, use the old buildings. How is this? There needs a real political will not even in Penang, in the whole of Malaysia to do that. Because yeah. I'm from Rao, you know. And <laughs> when I went back the last, 
Musang King here, Musang Kingdom. You know, yeah. you know that they, they they want the tourists. They want to get rich mm-hmm. and homestay here for Musang King, whatever. And I was thinking, this is like uh, over the top, you know, because the proximity of Raub and Kuala Lumpur is quite near, so they want to get somewhere outdoorish. Yet, you know, um, near Kuala Lumpur and have a feast and. So the identity of our places, you know, that doesn't have a say, you know, is left for anyone to interpret. That's something that means that the the channel of communication is closed, is it? Because you, you've been trying to get that channel of communication with the Penang uh, government. And, you know, um, and so... If only people have some morals, is it morality in terms of the what they want ethics or all this environmental yeah. ethics uh, or the thinking? They're so short term. Um, what yeah. what um, we have seen in, in what you say is very good when you, you pointed out uh, of of practices in Europe where they um, they reuse the existing buildings. Yeah. Sometimes it's just beyond the architect or beyond any professionals, as you said. Mm-hmm. It's the government so, that leads the way. Yeah, yeah. So I think, um, you know, architects need to learn how to work with existing buildings. And those are, you know, these are the skills that we need, how to improve things uh, and, and you know, how to create, how to make spaces more livable. And it, it's not necessarily a new city or a new township or even a new neighbourhood, but existing uh, neighbourhoods. And um, so between the, the architect, then you have uh, sort of artisanal artisanal skills, right? Which is also very lacking in our society. I think uh, the old artisans are dying off and the new, pe- new people are not really, uh, you know, filling that gap. So, um, you know, like, for example, in Australia, there's a, something like a do-it-yourself, you know, or maybe America or whatever, do-it-yourself yeah, culture. America. So. So, so these are building traditions where, you know, some of it you do it yourself. Of course, you can get people to work and all that. But then it becomes a very practical skill to build something rather than just drawing on the paper in the office and then, you know, give it to the contractor, you know. So these are the kind of, so when you do renovations and all that, there, there has to be that kind of sensibility that some things work, some things don't work. And it's the same thing with heritage. So, in heritage also, we have a, a big gap where, um, you know, you have contractors who don't know much, very much about conservation approach. I mean, you have, of course, you have very good ones, but it's not so, there are very few. Lah. And then you have uh, people who know the theory, maybe like myself, I know the theory, but I, I can't do it, you know, so I have to get somebody to do it. And then there's the communication gap and then things don't work out. So you need that some someone in between who who has some sort of uh, skills, and and these are the very I think the very good architects are the ones who also understand construction and they understand you know how things are done and you know so uh, to make sure that the so it's not the one who get, makes the most beautiful drawing for example although of course there is a something some merit in that in making beautiful drawings you know but then sometimes it doesn't work right in terms of when it translates to what it, whatever get, it's built you can get the computer to draw for you <laughs> and yeah, it's yeah. beautiful you have one Penang boy you know if you know about Cheng Sao In 
I, uh-huh. I, I interviewed him. He, uh-huh. he worked in, uh, with, with my friend Kobusiu, uh, and uh, he has the approach of materials. Materials are very important to, to, to deal with. And yeah, he's set up office in Jalan Gasing. So oh. one Penang boy in PJ scenario again. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's great. That's great. I think that... back to yeah, I think these are the kind of very interesting architecture where people, you know, those architects really understand the materials and then they're very, you know, into detailing and all that. Um, and whereas now what you see, but the thing is that that has a presence, you know, in our in our towns, our cityscapes are the big things, right? Where you can design something and you cut and paste, cut and paste up to, you know, 38 stories or 60 stories. And these are the things that, actually, you know, dominate, dominate the cities, unfortunately, you know, and it's, whereas the things that we as human beings, we need something that's human scale, something that we can relate to, you know, the detailing is important. And so it's, it's such a big contrast between uh, what money, there is money for, you know, uh, banks seem to be willing to lend money to this kind of very ambitious and uh, faceless you know, buildings which look somehow look good, good nice in architecture magazines, <laughs> but may not be that, you know, that uh, that appealing when you when you have to work in them or stay in them. So and then and in between that is that you know when uh, like retail space which uh, you know like independent kind of retail spaces. So uh, this kind of um, very good materials and detailing becomes very important because that's what's, what attracts customers. That, you know, customers want to go to a place where which has is very nicely designed and not a, a cut and paste thing, right? Are, are you happy of what has happened in the heritage inner city of Georgetown and all this conservation development that you helped to assist uh, the world heritage status and are you happy at the state that that it went? I mean, I, I know about the stories of too, um, of murals everywhere and and tourists too many tourists here and there and boutique hotels, but it's probably the 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 artisans are are getting older and they're not staying in the inner city, so it's kind of natural gentrification of things, even though it's under conservation plan uh, guidance, uh, but but. All in all, how, how do you feel about uh, your work there? After I feel, the- yeah, very frustrated. Lah. I feel that, um, you know, we actually worked very hard to get this uh, UNESCO World Heritage listing. And it is supposed to be a kind of constraint, right, on, on certain things that, so that you don't go and demolish your heritage buildings and you don't go and, you know, mess, mess them up. But instead of um, understanding what conservation should be about, you know, taking care, basically taking care of our heritage. I think it has been exploited for like tourism uh, and in in the wrong way, you know. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having tourists, but, uh, you know, it's it's all the facile um, things, you know, optics uh, that, you know, this, this looks good. Okay, we can sell it to tourists without understanding what is needed to actually sustain heritage, uh, the community there, and uh, how to upkeep uh, the, the built fabric. Lah. So, I mean, we know that, yes, the old people are going to 
uh, die off or someone going to move away. So what, what we try to do is to try and slow down this process of change because change will happen, but when it happens too fast, it can be quite disastrous. And, and I think the change just happened too fast in, in Georgetown. And, and um, there was money in the beginning for like under Ding City, but uh, it was also spent with certain, you know, KPI and all that, which uh, may not, it, it achieves certain objectives, I would say, but there are some objectives which are longer term, which um, are still very neglected. And that is the structural uh, integrity of the buildings, the integrity of the the of the community there, which has been which really had a uh, took a battering la, because of, of the property speculation. So um, in many ways, I'm not happy. Uh, but then people say, well, it could be worse. Uh, that's true. It could have been worse. <laughs> so which side do you when say? When we but? talk about the community, like Kukongsi or the clans, they have a lot of properties there. So they would be concerned about heritage structures to be in place or the community to still be intact because they wouldn't want too many boutique hotels either, isn't it? So it is a bottom-up uh, sort of uh, process in a way that the government has to facilitate because like, like what you're doing in, in eco-literacy, the things that you're doing in urban farming, it is a bottom-up. I'm, I'm going to the sort of the takeaways that you, you have learned because You've been very, you're a very experienced activist in dealing with many issues in urban uh, environment and um, cities. So, this, this, what, what can we learn from from this, this, this uh, projects or these initiatives? And I, I'm, I'm more, you know, when I think about what my brother does in in Tamantun and all this, um, talking to him a lot is the. Uh, small businesses taking care of the bottom-up approach and actually showing to the government or the local authority this is how it works and 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 um, I mean it's a, a bit like Indonesia you know Indonesia you have like a lot of problem up in the top and the middle layer so they take it upon themselves to sort it out in the local it, yeah. communities so do you think this is the only way to go so far because you know where while people sort out things out there you know we, that's all we can do really yes I, I i sort of agree with that yeah uh somehow i mean we shouldn't wait definitely shouldn't wait for um people up there to sort out problems you know um and and now with the covid pandemic i think uh what the government can do is actually to enable i mean to enable people to solve their own problems um, so one of the things uh, which I've been keeping an eye on, like I said, is urban farming, right? So now there is uh, some guidelines for urban farming. I haven't read the guidelines yet, but basically there's a lot of uh, space out there which can be used for urban farming. And if the government just need to enable and facilitate and let the community do it, and if they have incentives, that's, that's fine, you know, but... Um, uh, we're talking about, you know, people are in such desperation now, okay, people who don't have enough to eat or they're living on uh, instant noodles, like I said. And and if they don't get the diversity in the diet, if they don't get proper vegetables and all that, they are going to be more vulnerable to COVID. And this COVID is not going to go away. It's going to be around even when people are vaccinated. Um, for In some countries where there's a high level of vaccination, 
they they are then they then they say there's there's new strains. Oh, you know, actually we were we almost solved the problem and then this delta came along. But what makes you then you know you have to take another shot. But what makes you think that a new strain is not going to come along, a variant, right? A new variant is not going to come along, which is going to upset all your planning again. Because we we have lost control. And yeah, we have we will be disrupted again and again. This yes, yes. So so we have to think of a more resilient way of people, you know, can, so that people can survive. So community resilience is very important. We were thinking about community resilience for climate change, and we always think that oh, climate change is coming. It's not so bad yet. It's going to come, and you know, but actually, the COVID resilience to COVID pandemic and lockdowns and all that that is now. Is now we can experience it already, and the climate change problem is going to come. The loss of biodiversity—all these problems are going to be compounded. So, you know what we need now is um, anything that uh, we can think of to make the community more resilient. How people can help themselves because you cannot keep helping everybody forever, right? But how can people help themselves, and how can how do you enable the middle tier group who have uh, more, you know, they can think beyond themselves to help the, the B40. So this is, I think, where, uh, you know, the we have to think of solutions and they're not, there will be, you know, small solutions, so small solutions. So people who are urban professionals, they can all help in all these solutions because they have some skills, you know, some relevant skills. So as I was saying in the, the previous, you know, the um, Zoom session organized by Prekabanda, we need pl- uh, virtuous planning, virtuous planning, architects with conscience, inclusive urban design. I mean, these are the, the adjectives that they themselves coin, you know, but you need it as a whole, as a society, not just in, your, in one profession, but in, in all the various professions yeah. working for the community. Yeah, I agree with you that the the, the professionals, uh, the different professions have to start talking to each other because I was in a session with the planners the other day, just talking on accessibility. And um, and one of the big issue, uh, one of the issue was the planners were saying, no, that's the architect's job, that's the engineer job. And I tried to mention to them that uh, in, in local authorities, the, the planners are the, 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 the one that is in the big decision-making. They're in that positions. And that's the reality of it, you know, uh, how it happens. So the planners cannot just wait for the other profession. They, you have to go and communicate. Mm-hmm. And um, going back, I think we're going to the last leg of our discussion. Can I just say something yeah, about that? Yeah, can yeah. Just say something ahead. about that? Yes. You know, you say that the, the decisions are made by the planners. I mean, this is the, the, this is the whole problem because... Uh, you know, when you even I was in city council for one and a half years, right? In the end, they said who makes the decision, so it becomes you know very very top down, right? And and the government, as you know, works in silos. So every department is a silo, uh, every ministry is a silo. And when you say you know how about this, then the people say oh, but I cannot comment because it's not my department, hmm. you know. And and actually, this is um a. a one of the main reasons for failure because we are not working across to, to commonly, yeah. you know, uh, getting together to solve the problem, but we are uh, constrained by the silo thinking, silo thinking and silo responsibility, you know, and 
and we just cannot afford to do this anymore. We just can't afford as a society or even as custodians of our you know, our environment. We cannot afford to do this. This okay, sorry. COVID, COVID pandemic was working in silo as well. We saw that, you know, how how the inter uh, ministry problems. We, as an NGO, you you're in 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 um, uh, coalition of NGOs in Harapan OKU. You noticed that we had to go and uh, some of us had to bring people together to resolve things for the OKU to to solve some things, right? Like like what YB Ras Center YB Ras did. Um, but but uh, yeah, re- yeah refocus back into this topic of y- you as the activist and and how what would you like to give us the, the the learning the lessons learned and even though you know things are bleak but you know the lessons learned is the these what are the problems and that we need to solve as society immediately and uh, I know there's a lot but. Uh, there are a lot of audiences uh, listening who are from the architecture field, who are educators <laughs> and students. But you know, looking at how their their role in society um, is it that they identify as as just a, a member of society and not be preoccupied with their role, or what is their function with the function that they do? What's the most conscious the conscience? you know, that is needed at this time? Mm. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question because people have to have a livelihood, right? They have to find uh, a way to, to make a living, right? And then, so, architects are very dependent on the people who pay them. Uh, but that, that's why I said we should try to explore some sort of uh, community models where architect works for the community, but somehow they can still, you know, make a living. I don't know how, how that's going to work, but I think that's very essential. And um, of course, local government actually plays a big role and local governments now also do kind of all these big projects and um, it, because, you know, bank lends money and then it, it just trickles into all these places so um, I was going to say about, let me first say something about Harapan OKU. I think what you have is very precious because uh, people with a different type of disability have learned how to talk to each other. I think that even that took quite a long time, right? And yeah. now they, they kind of understand each other's issues. Um, and it's just maybe people at the top because you have, you know, Harapan OKU, the people who are dealing with the government. But I mean, this sort of thing should be happening, you know, at every level and in, in all the different fields. You know, people learn how to talk to people who are not from their discipline and how to work together and not, not be in a silo. Um, and people, you know, people uh, going across um, different uh, occupations, different language groups, different, um, of course, religious cultural groups and all that. So, um if you talk, if you say that the the common challenge is community resilience, right? And then how do we address that that issue? So everybody has a role to play. So in the case of the, the Nelayan, whom you know, I've got you know, fishermen. yeah, the fishermen. So before before this um, uh, this uh, uh, reclamation, you know, the our our um, what do you call it? Um, our movement to 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 actually 
oppose the reclamation of the south of Penang Island, Penang South Reclamation. Uh, you know, I didn't know any fishermen. My uncle is a fisherman, but he's like in his 80s. But I didn't know the community, that community. And I didn't know the values, the worldview. Uh, um, and they are like totally different community. They're, you know, uh, all Malay speaking fishermen. I mean, they're also Chinese fishermen, but the ones we deal with are mainly the Malay fishermen. And they they have a, a worldview about, about the sea, about nature, uh, about, you know, who is doing what in the sea, like people are polluting, where these pollution come from, uh, how, how do the fish behave, you know, I mean, things like that. And which is a kind of traditional wisdom, which, which then end up, uh, it's very valuable to our food security. We want to eat fresh fish. Fresh fish is important, especially for older people. It's rich in omega-3 and so forth. And uh, this is along the, the food chain, right? And yet it's so near because they catch our fish. And yet it's so far because we have no interaction with these people. You know, so let's say a lot of Pinangites who are not, not involved in the fisheries industry wouldn't know anything about fisheries. And I didn't know anything until about two years ago. So, uh, and yet, you know, we are living on the same island. You know, so we are so near and yet so far. So there's a lot of uh, social, like, uh, what do you call it, pockets of people who they don't realize that they're even living in a social pocket or, uh, you know, in a kind of tempurong. Okay, so we all have different tempurong. Some are very gilded. Even our coconut shells. <laughs> you know, or even the Penang Island people don't understand the issues in Sabrang Prai, you know. So things which are very near and yet which are very far. But somehow, anyway... Uh, for certain level of people, the Zoom is a very great equalizer because, you know, you can talk to anyone, you can talk to somebody across the world and it's just as if I'm talking to you and you're in KL, right? And you can have webinars with, you know, people across you, the world. Have you got into the Clubhouse? Which Clubhouse? <laughs> club, clubhouse app. The the, oh, no. Yeah, I yeah. don't know about it. Should yeah. I invite you there? Then oh, you maybe, would. yeah, why not? Yeah. I will, I will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of, um, for me, being vision impaired on the right eye, I'm investing myself more on the podcast, more on the audio, yeah, audio uh, communication, because um, one thing is uh, sharing what you say is very true. I didn't know Harapan OKU was, was just a chat group, and which that's what it is, creating conversations, and conversations are important. And you did that being present, you attended the rally or, the, you know, whatever that is that you went to and being present at the moment with a group of people is a great thing already yeah. to, to, to be aware and to, 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 to actually understood where we are, where we, what our roles are and, and the small things that we can contribute, even signing a, a petition Yes, it's true. We have WhatsApp and we have all these groups. Um, but uh, there are some of us who are limited in, in certain um, uh, medium. So, you know, um, I'm sure the, the fishermen in, in Penang, they have a, WhatsApp has become like probably their way of communicating, isn't it? Because yes, yes. that's already becoming like everywhere in the world, you know, this, this, this communication on, on this, this medium. So, um, Susama, I think uh, 
would would you like to give an advice or so for the next few minutes? <laughs> okay, uh, okay, I always have to end with advice. Um, so, uh, real people are important. Real things are important. Nature is important, uh, and we need to um, sort of. I I think what I've been saying throughout is that uh, you know if you your 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 education is become an architect, but you have to educate yourself on a lot of other things to make yourself relevant as an architect, you know, in, in, in the yeah. contemporary society to address uh, real issues and to solve people's problems, you know. So it's, it's coming up with solutions. So it's, it's a lot about context, right? You, cannot, you can design something in a vacuum, but in the end, what is relevant is that you solve, um, you have solutions for something which is in a real context. So context is important and you have to learn about, you have to keep learning about the context and the habitat. I mean, the, the how the conditions that people live in and they work in and, and, and how things are changing because everybody's now working from home. And I think typologies have to change. You know, typology is like you have uh, office, you have work, you have, you know, office area, you have shopping district, you have, um, what is it, uh, you know, uh, industrial area and all that. But how I think what's the going to be the uh, the kind of um, 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 pattern in future is that you have uh, an entrepreneur, for example, working at home with uh, a space which a space or uh, which is an office, right? And then which where somebody else can come in to help, maybe one or two staff. But it's not going to be a huge office because everybody else is going to be working remotely. So what kind of typology is that? Because you cannot be, you cannot have office space in the residential area at the moment, but it happens, but you know, it's not really recognized, you know, and, and then uh, you cannot, um, but at the same time, you don't want to be going to the office all the time. So, you know, you have to come up with new typologies, which are mixed typologies. And at the same time, be very wary about developers who then exploit loopholes, like loopholes in service apartment typology <laughs> you know so solve the problem but don't create loophole for uh, people who just want to make money yeah you know the typology the shop house typology can encompass all that absolutely <laughs> and, and, and and not only that this kind of outdoor uh shopping like you you just uh, walk along the street and then you can buy something it's, it's not in an air-conditioned mall shop it's a, house it's a, again yeah it's a shop house and and this it has so much relevance because all these traditional buildings, shop house, kampong house, is built to be ventilated. No and COVID, less COVID, less well COVID. And, and now air-conditioned spaces, you have to kind of like um, phase them out, okay? Um, the majority of air-conditioned air spaces are going to be uh, high COVID risk areas. So how do you phase yeah. them out? Actually, you look, look back at the traditional architecture, our heritage architecture. There's so many examples to learn from. And how do you adapt them? How do you use them? How do you revitalize them? I made sure that my second years, they understand the Malay traditional house and the Chinese uh, uh, shop house typology. Uh, usually we get them to go out and about. You know how I like to bring them to Penang and then, uh, you know, places like that for them to experience. In fact, you know, the students who went to... In 2012, if you recall 2012, when we bought a bunch of students with Kevin Matlow and going to all sorts of spice factory in the middle of Little India with Praveena, yeah. they thought that there was this bunch of people, 
become well-rounded individuals, you know, and they always refer to the best ever trip they ever had. Wow. Was it? Yeah, yeah, it really influenced them. Paul Nixon, the act, artist, you know, quite a number of them already. They're well, you know, they're they're confident even at the age of 29 now. They 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 can they can you know make some decisions because this is the resilience of, of 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 the human being that we want to um, assist in their you know developing of their you know of the that that human being that Malaysian that we okay. want right among our youngsters. So you know, although you don't know that. And being part of that little project and so many other things that you've assisted, University Malaya or UTM, where I was before, <laughs> you had helped with these people as well. And um, I'm so proud of you, Salma and uh, Raza and, and, and your children. Oh, I, I, I mean, you're a great educator. <laughs> so <laughs> You too. You, you too. You just shepherd all these people along and then uh, we we'll do a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we do our sermon and shepherd the flock. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and your mom, so ever gracious when I'm in connect. Thank you so much. So we we hope to have you again uh, in an interview if you feel like it again. Always yeah. welcome to the podcast, Talk Architecture. Thank you again, Summer. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.